0: Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. As you may remember, a few weeks ago at President's Convocation, I delivered a very significant message about the uh, problem of the decline of baptisms in Southern Baptist churches, particularly since 2000, when the number has been in a free fall. Uh, The baptismal rate in Southern Baptist churches is as low now as it's been since 1940s. And the uh, sad reality is 30% of Southern Baptist churches in 2017 didn't baptize anyone, and 50% baptized uh, two people or less. Well, I could go on with statistical data, but the, the reality is we are diminishing in our effectiveness of sharing the gospel with people, leading them to faith in Jesus, and then leading them to make a public profession of that faith through baptism. I haven't seen a statistic on this, but if you factored out the churches that are reaching hundreds of people from the equation, I think we'd be alarmed at just how few churches are reaching people, and some of them in very large numbers, which is really making us look healthier even than we are as a denomination as a whole. So I'm very concerned about this problem. In fact, in the uh, presentation I made a few weeks ago, I said it was the most pressing problem facing Southern Baptists at this time. And I laid out a case for that, and I won't repeat that on today's podcast, but uh, would encourage you to go back and listen to that original podcast and original message uh, that was delivered to get a context for what I'm doing now. Because as I announced after that uh, presentation, I'm going to spend some time on the podcast talking about the 10 factors that I identified which are undermining our effectiveness in personal evangelism. Now, there might be 20 factors. There might be... Uh, Uh, any number of factors but I I selected these 10 because these are 10 that I either observe or that I hear or that I recognize from my experience have changed over the years and really I think are undermining our effectiveness. Now I also said in the original message that most of these problems I'm identifying are actually uh, at their core strengths of our movement which are simply out of balance or have been taken too far to an extreme. And so what I'm advocating is not rejecting really any of these uh, ten factors as being evil or wrong or uh, without any kind of redemptive contribution. What I'm suggesting is that in each of these factors we need to come back to a healthier balance, come back to a better understanding of how to uh, of how to uh, practice or deal with those issues that doesn't undermine personal evangelism and, in fact, actually contributes to it. So now we've come to the third factor that I identified in the message, and that is Uh, A factor which is undermining our effectiveness in sharing the gospel and leading people to openly profess faith through baptism is this, theological extremes that undermine evangelism. Now here's what I said in the original message. While too much time to arguing theology is problematic, some of the positions being advocated also undermine evangelism. Let me mention two examples. The first is understanding the doctrine of election in a way that inhibits responsibility for sharing the gospel and persuading people to receive the gospel. The Bible makes two paradoxical statements. First, salvation is entirely by God's grace and extends only to those he chooses. Second, salvation occurs only when a person repents of sin, places faith in Jesus, and receives God's grace. Some bridge this paradox by settling on one statement and allowing it to define the other. The better response is to find orthodoxy in the tension between these statements. One friend put it this way, God only saves the elect, but since I have no idea who they are, my job is to share the gospel with everyone and let God sort it out. Another friend, Dr. Danny Aiken wrote, we dare not be seduced into living in a theological ghetto that may espouse a nice, neat doctrinal system, but that does so at the expense of a wholesome and comprehensive theology. And then he added, Any theology that does not result in a hot heart for the souls of lost persons is a theology not worth having. While affirming doctrinal convictions is vital, keeping them in balance is essential to biblical orthodoxy and spiritual vitality. The second doctrinal concern is practical universalism that grows out of an overemphasis on God's love. God is loving, but he is also holy. God loves every person, but he also holds every person accountable for their sin. Again, these realities, love and holiness, must be held in dynamic tension. Emphasizing God's holiness without love leads to legalism. Embracing God's love without holiness leads to universalism, meaning God loves us all, accepts us as we are, and will overlook any deficiencies and welcome us to heaven. God loves us but demands we acknowledge and repent from our sin. Delivering this message is at the heart of personal evangelism. The resulting interpersonal tension is a reason some believers do not share their faith. They would rather affirm God's love for everyone and hope for an eternal best than engage in a potentially stressful conversation about sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Practical universalism, resulting from an out-of-balance understanding of God's love, undermines personal evangelism. Now, having said that in the original presentation, let me talk about some aspects of those of my statement and amplify it in a way that hopefully will be helpful. First of all, let's talk about the problem of paradoxical statements in the Christian faith. Uh, there's no doubt that the Bible declares things to be true that when stood up next to each other seem to either be contradictory or in some way in conflict. But that's not true. That's not so because the Bible is always true in all of its declarations. But it's hard to hold competing ideas in our limited minds. It's hard to reconcile these different statements and put them together in a way that we can hold them together in our thinking. So because it's so difficult to do this, it's natural to try to resolve this tension. Now, how do we do that? Well, typically we do it by choosing one tension point over the other. And then we try to interpret all what I will call tension scriptures in light of our position. So a person, for example, who, uh, who accepts the passages about the doctrine of election then inter- interprets all the other passages in light of that doctrine. Or a person who accepts the passages about salvation being available to all and uh, salvation being by personal choice of repentance and faith. Uh, interprets the passages in light of those verses. And so this kind of uh, paradoxical statement, we tend to try to resolve it because it's uh, hard for us to hold these ideas in our limited minds by choosing one side or the other and then forcing all the other passages in Scripture to align themselves somewhat with what we believe. Now, this is a challenge because of the commonness of paradox in the Christian faith. I can think of several paradoxical uh, statements or paradoxical concepts that are in the Christian faith. The first one, and perhaps the most obvious one, is the Trinity. Uh, there have been uh, countless volumes, whole shelves of libraries, whole sections of libraries, written to try to explain this wonderful mystery of the Trinity, that God is three in one. Now, I can declare it, I can attempt to explain it, but quite honestly, I I confess that the Trinity is more mysterious than my limited mind can fully conceive. And so this paradoxical statement about God being three in one, uh, God being three but only one, uh, God expresses himself in three ways but is still only one, these things are hard to understand, but yet they're paradoxical statements that we affirm as part of our faith. Here's another one. Uh, God knows everything, but we still get to make choices. It's comical. My wife and I had this conversation just last night. We, <laughs> we were uh, actually at the pool doing our evening exercises and getting in some swimming. Uh, and during one of our breaks, we were just talking about some of the things going on in our family. And my wife said, it's just comforting to know that ultimately God's going to get us where we need to be. And I said, well, yeah, I guess that is comforting. But along the way, we have some responsibility to make some choices. And we both laughed about the fact that we were taking these two different positions, these paradoxical statements that relate to our faith, and trying to reconcile them in a practical matter of some things going on within our family and how we're looking for and anticipating God giving leadership and direction. And then another one is uh, the, the, the fact that history is marching toward God's conclusions. We see those in the book of Revelation, and we, we take comfort and in, in, in joy in those, and yet at the same time, we spend an enormous amount of energy both personally, corporately, congregationally, institutionally, and governmentally, trying to shape the future. And so this paradox of God is moving history toward his conclusions and we are at the same time trying to shape or make history along the way. All I'm trying to illustrate is that paradox is a common uh, aspect of the Christian faith. There are many different issues in the Bible where these declarative statements are made about uh, election and choice, about Trinitarian issues of God being three in one, about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, about God's purpose in history and our responsibility to make choices in shaping history. These things are all in Scripture, and we have to hold these paradoxical statements uh, in a healthy tension if we're going to live Uh, And find the real truth that comes from the balance of those in Scripture. So, what's your best response to paradox? Well, I've already said these things in some ways, but let me summarize in sort of a bullet point approach. Your best response to paradoxical statements in Scripture is this number one, affirm truth as the Bible teaches it. Stop trying to explain the Bible, declare it, believe it, put it into practice. Uh, while theologians and apologists make it their life's work to explain these, uh, these dilemmas, and that's certainly a valid pursuit, uh, they don't have to be explained before they can be believed. So affirm truth as the Bible teaches it and put it into practice uh, in your life. Second, embrace the tension of differing positions. Now, this is hard to do. And quite honestly, I, I confess that when I was a much younger Christian, uh, I didn't want to embrace any tension. I believed that the Christian life was a giant math problem, and that if you could figure out how it all fit together, uh, especially all the information of the Bible, that you could systematize it in such a way that it came out perfectly. I was so disappointed when I took my first systematic theology class that that was not achieved. My professor did a great job of teaching theology and even showing systems of theology, but he did not resolve all the tension for me. And it was the first time that I really had to face up to the reality that... There was always going to be some tension between differing positions uh, in theological understanding of, uh, of the christian faith and of biblical understanding of theology and i was going to have to either be frustrated by those tensions or embrace those tensions and recognize that was the part that was part of the mystery the mystery of following god and i guess as i've gotten older that's become more important in my life i I've realized that, that so much about God is still a great mystery to me. Now, I know God. I'm, I'm confident of that. I, I, I know enough about his revelation of himself through Jesus Christ and through the scriptures that I am confident that I, I know him. But knowing him and knowing all about him are two very different things. And as I've matured in my Christian faith, I've been able to hold these tensions In balance, more effectively, and to be less frustrated by them, and to embrace them as part of the mystery of God and the mystery of following and pursuing a relationship with Him. So, first, affirm truth as the Bible teaches it, and then, second, embrace the tension of differing positions to enable you to live in this context of of paradox. Third, have some humility about your theological positions. This is a big problem today. Presumptive theologians who have read a book or who have been to a conference or who have listened to an influential speaker and come away and say, we have the final answer on everything. Now again, I'm embarrassed to confess that that was me at one time in my early Christian life, but I've grown in this to understand that there are other genuine Christians who hold very legitimate understandings of Scripture and who've come to conclusions that are different than those that I share, and that they may actually be right on some points, and I need to hold to my points, especially my points of difference with them, with humility. So rather than say, this is the absolute way of understanding all theological truth, and no one can disagree with me, or they're wrong, I now say, this is a way to hold theological truth that I've come to by convictional study of Scripture, and I won't be moved on this, but I'll give you a I'll have enough humility to say to you that you may have some insight as well that I need to learn from or at least consider as I'm honing or understanding what I believe. So I'm not saying when I when I advocate holding your position with humility, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we communicate with others, I might be right or I might be wrong. Uh, what I'm saying is that we come to a conclusion of what we believe is right from Scripture and good theological understanding of Scripture, and then we say... I'm holding to my position because I believe it's right, but I will acknowledge that you may have some insight that will help me as I go along to understanding what is fully true about these particular issues. So holding a position with humility doesn't mean that you hold a waffling position or that you don't have a convictional position, it just means that you do so with a deference and a respect for others who may not always agree with everything that you believe. You know, being in the seminary community has helped me on this because uh, really when you're in a diverse, multicultural, multiethnic, uh, multi-theologically uh, encamped denomination, and you're at a seminary, you really have to understand how to do this and do this well, to hold your convictions, teach them clearly, but to hold them with a bit of humility so that you come across as someone who's learning and growing and wanting to contribute to the fellowship of the church, not just to be divisive about everything. So hold your positions with humility. And then finally, be careful with labeling other Christians pejoratively. Uh, There's just too much of this going on in our world today. Um, Social media has made it so easy to attack other people and to do so anonymously. Uh, That is not a Christian response in any capacity and it's not healthy for the attacker or the person being attacked. So be careful that you're not attacking other Christians or labeling other Christians pejoratively. We throw around the the word heretic and phrases like that far too casually today. And so when you come across a person who doesn't hold to the same understanding of these paradoxical statements as you do, uh, be careful how you label them and recognize in many cases uh, you're going to heaven with that person and you need to act like it all along the way. So... Uh, Bullet points, best response to paradoxical statements in Scripture. Affirm truth as the Bible teaches it. Don't try to explain it all the way or reconcile it in a way that does damage to any text. Second, embrace the tension of differing positions. Recognize that there's always going to be some tension both within you and your relationship with these statements and you with others and their relationships to these statements. Third, have some humility about your position. Be convictional. Having humility does not mean that you waffle or that you don't stand up for what you believe but you do so with a deference toward others and a reality and an understanding of the reality that they may have some insight that will actually contribute to you as you try to understand your position more effectively. And then finally be careful with labeling other Christians in negative ways. Uh, certainly, there are heretics and people who have to be called out for teaching something that clearly violates Scripture, but let's be careful with those words and use them only when we must, and recognize that our responsibility is not to judge or label every other Christian who doesn't agree with us in a negative way. Now let's talk about, more specifically, a couple of these dilemmas that I mentioned in the, in the original message. The first one is about the doctrine of election. Election. Now, the Bible certainly teaches that. I'll just read one passage. It starts with an illustration and then it concludes with some instruction. That's Romans 9, 9 through 8. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah will have a son. And not only that, but Rebekah conceived children through one man, our father Isaac. For, through her, for though her sons had not been born yet, or done anything good or bad, so God, that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from one who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy on whom I shall show mercy, and I will have compassion on him on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This passage of Scripture uses three different Old Testament uh, illustrations uh, to help us understand that God has always been sovereign in his election of his people and continues to do so even up until this day and makes very clear statements about this throughout the passage. But then the Bible also says this in 1, Tim, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 3. This is good. And it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. This passage of scripture seems to st- or c- says very clearly that uh, Jesus died for all and salvation is available to all and God wants all to be saved. These are the kinds of paradoxical statements that I'm trying to get us to hold in tension and to recognize can both speak to us clearly and positively and specifically in the context of this message about our responsibility for personal evangelism. Now, what's the big error to avoid? The big error to avoid is allowing the doctrine of election to eliminate responsibility for personal evangelism, meaning for telling every single person possible that Jesus Christ loves them, died for them, and wants to come into their lives as Savior and Lord, and that they have a responsibility to repent of their sin and place faith in Jesus in order to access this salvation that God has made possible. So the, the, the challenge is not allowing the, this understanding or this, uh, the way we understand the doctrine of election and these passages about inclusion to undermine our work of personal evangelism. And they don't have to. Uh, some of the most evangelistic people I know are strident advocates and strident proponents of the doctrine of election. But as I said in the podcast, my one friend told me, I, I only believe God will save the elect, but since I have no idea who they are, I take the Bible's res- uh, command that I am responsible to share the gospel with every person of, that I can seriously. And I recognize my responsibility is sharing the gospel. God's responsibility is sorting out the whole issue of who and will be saved, when they will be saved, or if they will be saved. I can live with that good understanding of how to resolve this tension. And then I talked about another one of these tensions uh, in the Bible, and that is this issue about um, God's love. And I said in the, in the podcast and in the message that uh, a misunderstanding or an overemphasis on God's love leads to what I call a practical universalism, meaning that we really believe that uh, when everyone dies that God, a benevolent, loving Father, just kind of looks the other way and winks at our sin and says, oh, come on into heaven, uh, you're going to be okay. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Let's hear what the Bible does say about love and holiness. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This passage declares quite boldly, God is love. And it says that God loves everyone, but it also says that God's love was expressed most clearly in him sending Jesus Christ to die to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, meaning that God's love motivated the means for forgiveness to be extended to us by his son, Jesus Christ. Why was that necessary? Because God is also holy. In the doxological passages in the Revelation, for example, God's holiness is continually extolled. Listen to Revelation 4, uh, verse 8 it describes these living creatures that are flying around, hovering the throne of heaven, and it says, each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. In other words, these beings are pronouncing God's holiness and that God has always been holy, is holy, and will always be holy. And so the big error to avoid in the love and holy uh, paradox of how God is described in scripture is allowing God's love to equate with an absence of judgment and eternal consequence. God loves us, but remember, God's love motivated him to send Jesus to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Meaning that even in the context of God's love, he's reminding us that he is also holy. And that we must come to faith in Jesus Christ. We must repent of our sin, place faith in Jesus, receive God's grace. And only by that means will we have eternal life with him. This is, this is a hard position to hold. It's hard to hold because it means that some people will be excluded from god's eternal presence that's challenging it's difficult but it's true and so if you emphasize god's love to such an extent that it negates disqualifies or removes an understanding of god's judgment or excuse me god's holiness resulting in god's judgment leading to eternal consequences then you have misunderstood god's love And so you have to hold God's love and his holiness in paradox, yes, in tension, yes, but you have to understand that these things go together in a sense, and you can't have one without the other. Well, some misunderstanding of theological extremes undermines personal evangelism. When you emphasize election to the exclusion of personal responsibility for sharing the gospel, it will undermine personal evangelism and give you a laissez faire approach to how people are, are to people's eternal destiny. If you emphasize God's love to the exclusion of God's holiness, it will lead you to a practical universalism saying it really doesn't matter if we evangelize because in the end, God's just going to make it okay. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches, and we need to hold to that healthy tension of understanding God's love in the context of his holiness and seeing them come together. My hope and prayer from these podcasts is that you will be more invigorated for personal evangelism and that secondarily, you will be more committed to leading your church and ministry organization to be more intentional about sharing the gospel with people. We're working our way through these factors that I've identified that are undermining personal evangelism. Listen, the stakes are high. The stakes are high. If we continue on the current trajectory that we have, we're going to see more and more and more churches close and our denomination weakened by the fact that we are not having new converts come into our churches, be made disciples of Jesus, and following up with leadership training and carrying us forward into future generations. Listen, God's kingdom is going to go forward. Southern Baptist can be part of that. We'll recapture our passion for personal evangelism, for getting the gospel to as many people as possible. I hope you'll join me in, in taking on this task as you lead on.